This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. This episode 284, entitled Exploring the Triad in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 17. We're in this series in which we are taking a close look at these triadic passages in the New Testament, that is, passages that talk about the Father, Son, and the Spirit either in the same breath or in the same sentence or in the same phrase. And we're looking to see if this really is, as we are reliably told by Trinitarians, evidence, clear evidence, that the first century believers believed and taught the doctrine of the Trinity. Now we've looked at Matthew 28, 19, we've looked at a variety of these triadic passages within Paul, and upon close examination, it seems that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually lacking from these passages. It seems that the Father just is God, it seems that the Son is someone distinct from God, and the Spirit is not a separate person, but the extended power and presence of God. This week we're going to continue to look at the triadic passages in the New Testament. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. In this passage are we going to finally find evidence that the one God actually is three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the triad in Ephesians chapter 3. Let's begin by reading our passage. Starting in verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So there you have it. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all listed together in the same verse. They are all mentioned together in this prayer. But there's actually no indication that the Father, Son, and Spirit are understood as three distinct persons that are defined as the one true God. We're not told that the Father is God, the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. We're not told any of those points. It's just that all three of them are listed together in the same sense. And I'm not sure if we could really make much more out of this passage other than seeing a passage where Peter, James, and John are all mentioned together in the same sentence. Yes, the three are very important, but should we understand them as distinct persons all included into the being of the one true God? The passage seems to be lacking those details. What can we actually say about this passage? Well, let's start with the Father. We can see that Paul, I'm just going to say Paul here, is the one who is bowing his knees to the Father. The Father 
is the sole object of this particular prayer. The author is not bowing his knees to the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's only the Father. The Father's the only one that the author here seems to be directing his prayer towards. We can also see another important point about the Father, and that the Father is the one from whom all families derive their name. Every family in heaven and on earth. This seems to suggest that the Father is the creator of all of them. And that makes sense because the Father, of course, is a patriarchal figure. And the Father would be the one that would give the name to his children, to the families that stem forth from the Father. It's interesting. All families derive their name from one person, not from two or three persons, not from the triune God consisting of three persons. All families derive their name from one single person, one single being, and that being is the Father alone. This, of course, is indicative of the fact that the author regards the Father as the only true God and as the only creator. Moving on, what can we say about the Son, the Son of God? Christ. Well, Christ, of course, is the title for Jesus as the anointed king. He is the anointed one, the anointed king. And, of course, if you are anointed, you are anointed by someone else. Well, who is the one who anointed Christ? Well, presumably the Father, and presumably by the Father sending his Spirit. Not much more can be said about Christ in this particular passage, other than the fact that the prayer petitions the Father with the result that Christ, someone distinct from the recipient of the prayer, may dwell in the hearts of the readers of this letter. What can we say about the Spirit? Well, there's a very interesting detail about the Spirit in this passage. Did you catch it? The Spirit here is called His Spirit. Who is the His? To whom does this pronoun point back? Well, the pronoun is referring to the Father. The Spirit belongs to the Father, meaning the Spirit is the extension of the Father's power in the fact that it strengthens believers, and the Spirit is the extension of the presence of the Father in the lives of the readers. The Spirit just is the Spirit of God, but God is just the Father, so it's the Spirit of the Father, the Father being the only true God. This is a really important point. Oftentimes, Trinitarians will say the Spirit is a distinct person, but what we're seeing here is that the Spirit is related to the Father and the fact that it belongs to the Father. It's the Father's own Spirit that is sent out to bring the Father's presence, and to strengthen the readers. So the Father appears to be the only true God in this passage. Christ seems to be distinct from the object of prayer, and the Spirit is not a separate person on close examination, but rather it is the Father's personal Spirit that empowers and strengthens believers. So we don't have a reference to the triune God in this passage. This passage is incompatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. What other clues about the Father, Son, and Spirit might we gather from exploring the entirety 
of Ephesians, thereby allowing us to appropriately place this passage, Ephesians 3, 14-17, in its overall literary context. That will move us to our second point. Point number two, what Ephesians teaches about God. Well, in Ephesians 1, 3, the author says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. So we could see that God here is defined as the Father, and God is compared to our Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that the God is the God of Jesus. But it's not just that the God is the God of Jesus. He is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That makes Jesus the Son, and that makes God the Father alone, and it distinguishes God from Jesus. Jesus cannot be this God because this God is Jesus' God. This means that God would be greater than Jesus. Jesus has a God, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. But that's not the only passage in which we see this particular theological point. In Ephesians 1.17, the author says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So again, we can see that Jesus has a God, and this God of Jesus is called the Father of glory. And this God is described with a singular pronoun. The prayer is that the God of Jesus will give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, a singular pronoun. That much is clear. Again, Jesus has a God, and that God simply is the Father alone. A little bit later, in chapter 3, verse 9, we see a little bit more in regard to the object of the prayer that we saw in our primary passage. So in Ephesians 3, 9, we can see that the prayer involves bringing to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. That's Ephesians 3, verse 9. Now, what we have here is a verb indicating the one who created all things. It's not just a verb to create. It's the one who created all things. The creator, in and of itself, references a single person. So the God who created all things cannot be more than one person, because the verb to create is singular. It is one person. And of course, we know that one person is the Father alone. So it's the Father who created all things. The Father, of course, is the one from whom all families derive their names. And the Father, of course, is Jesus' God. And if the Father is Jesus' God, then the Father should be the God of all the readers of Ephesians. So, of course, God is the one who created all things, thereby indicating that the Creator could only be one person. It could not be two or three persons based on the verb to create in Ephesians 3, verse 9. If that wasn't clear, then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6 would absolutely settle the argument. After listing a variety of ones, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, we can see in chapter 4, verse 6, that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
full references to all, all things, all persons, and the God who's in charge of them is described as the Father, the God and Father of all. That, of course, would include the one Lord Jesus Christ mentioned earlier in the passage. But this is clear. The God of Jesus is the God of everybody. He is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. He is the Father of all. And we saw that because all families derive their name from this one God described as the Father alone. So Ephesians is thoroughly Unitarian and completely inconsistent with Benetarianism or Trinitarianism. A couple more passages we can look at regarding God. In chapter 5, verse 1, we are told to therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Now, how is it that we can imitate God by being children who are loved? Well, that, of course, indicates that if we are children, then God must be the Father. If we are functioning as children, then God takes the role of the Father. That's clear because God has already been described as the Father on at least three occasions. So the reference to the fact that the children are the ones who imitate God proves that God must be the father of those children. And a few verses later, in chapter 5, verse 20, we are told that we should always be giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's chapter 5, verse 20. So the giving of thanks is given to God. It's done in the name of our Lord Jesus, but ultimately it's given to God. This, of course, indicates that there is a distinction between our Lord Jesus Christ and God. And the passage also indicates that, by the way, the God is described just as the Father. So God is the Father alone. He is the direct object of the giving of thanks, not just the prayer language, but of the giving of thanks. However, our Lord Jesus Christ is the person through whom we offer our thanks to the one God. So here we can see the one God being defined as the Father alone, but also the one God being distinguished from Jesus. So that's enough about God. What can we say about the Son? This moves us to our third point, point number three, what Ephesians teaches about the Son. Like point number two, Ephesians has quite a lot to say about the Son. So in chapter 1, verse 20, we are told that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. So the subject here, of course, is God. God brought about in Christ when God raised Christ from the dead. And we can also see that Christ was seated at God's right hand. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, to where Yahweh, the only true God, exalts a secondary Lord figure to his right hand. This means that Christ is that Lord that's been exalted to the right hand of Yahweh. And it, of course, means that Christ is distinguished from Yahweh. And it means that Christ has died because he was dead. He was among the dead. And 
the one true God, raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus was someone who was mortal. He died. He had to be given new life. And not only was he raised from the dead, but he was exalted to the right hand of Yahweh, thereby indicating that Jesus is an exalted figure. That's very important. But also he is someone distinguished from God. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, we see that even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that's chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Now this is a reference to believers who are identified with Christ. Okay, They are made alive together with Christ. They are people who are in Christ. They are raised up with him, and they are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus was seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. And now believers in the inaugurated eschatology, in the inauguration of the reign of God, we can already see that they are already sharing in the reign of Christ in the present, in the sense that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, and now believers are seated with him in this inaugurated eschatology. But the point here is that Christ is the one who is seated in heavenly places because he died, he was made alive, he was raised up, and he was exalted and seated at the right hand of God. In chapter 4, verse 13, we could see a little bit more. It says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature human being, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's chapter 4, verse 13. Now, it seems here that Christ is, of course, being described as the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, God, by definition, has to be the Father meaning Jesus is the Son of the Father, but also we can see that by believers coming to the full knowledge of the Son of God, they are coming to this mature faith in this human being. And this, of course, will bring them to the fullness of Christ. This seems to indicate that Jesus is a human being, and the context of Ephesians chapter 4 involves laying aside the old man, that is the old Adam, and to come to the full knowledge and to grow up in maturity in the measure of this new human being, namely the Son of God, namely Christ. This indicates that Jesus is the second Adam and that Jesus is the human being, a member of the human race. And if you're a member of the human race, you are certainly not the one true God because God is not a human being. A few verses later, in verse 32 of chapter 4, we are told to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Chapter 4, verse 32. So we can see that God has forgiven believers, but God has done this through working through his Son, through working in Christ. So God was working in Christ to extend his forgiveness to others. This is God working through another person, not the sense of God being incarnate in Christ. Just as believers are giving their thanks 
through Christ to God. The other way around is that God forgives people through Christ. And so Christ has an important function as the mediator of the giving of thanks, but also as the mediator of the issuing of forgiveness. In chapter 5, verse 2, we are told that we are to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's Ephesians 5, verse 2. Now we're seeing that the offering of Jesus was something that he gave himself up for. He gave his entire self. All of himself was given. This is not supposedly a Jesus that has two natures, a divine nature that's immortal that can't die because it's supposedly God, and a human nature that's mortal that only that part died. No, it's Christ giving himself up, all of himself. His entire being was given up, and it was given as a sacrifice to God. This is not God dying for people's sins. This is Christ giving himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God. And that's very important. We can see that sacrificial language is being offered to God, but we don't see sacrificial language in the New Testament being given to Jesus, nor do we see it given to the Holy Spirit. It's only to God. And of course, we know, based on passages we've already seen, that God in Ephesians is the Father alone. So Jesus was mortal. He died. He gave up his entire self, all of him. He 100% died, not just one part of him, 100% of him died as a sacrifice to someone distinguished from him, and that being who is distinguished from Christ is God, meaning that Christ is not God. He is distinguished from God. He is distinct from God. So that's enough about the Son. What can we say about the Holy Spirit? This is our fourth point, what Ephesians teaches about the Holy Spirit. So starting in chapter 1, in verse 13, we read, In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I do need to point out here that the pronoun has been incorrectly translated here. The Holy Spirit is not a who that is given as a pledge of the inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a thing. The Holy Spirit, which is given as a pledge of our inheritance, because the Holy Spirit is grammatically neuter. So you can't translate this neuter reference as if it is a who. It is the Holy Spirit a promise, which is given as a pledge. It is impossible to translate it as who. That is a mistranslation. It's not just an ambiguous choice or something that you could choose if you wanted to, based on your theological presupposition, you have to break the rules of Greek grammar in order to translate the Holy Spirit as a who. Because it's not a conscious person. It is a neuter noun. So it should be the Holy Spirit, which is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And if your translation says that, kudos to you. Pat yourself on the back. So we needed to point that out. In chapter 2, verse 22, we are told that in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, verse 22. 
here we can see that the Spirit continues to function as the presence of God inside the dwelling of God that typically functions as a temple or a tabernacle. And now we're seeing that the body of Christ, the church, is now the new temple of God. And so the dwelling of God, the house of God, the temple of God, is now being built together in you. Second person plural. And so we can see that this functions by God in the Spirit. That is the Father's Spirit being sent out to dwell in the midst of the believers to create a temple dwelling for them. So the Spirit functions as the extended presence of God. In chapter 4, verse 30, we are told to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have the same problem that we had back in our first passage to where the Spirit of God is described here as a whom, but that is an incorrect translation. You can't translate the neuter reference as whom. It is by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. You cannot translate it as by whom. That is wrong. That is minus 10 points if I'm grading your Greek translation here. But the interesting thing here is that the Spirit is something that you can grieve. You can grieve the Spirit. Now, there are some people that look at the Spirit and they want to distance themselves completely from the Spirit being a person. So they say the Spirit is just a thing. They say the Spirit is impersonal. But you look at a passage like this and the Spirit is something that you're told to not grieve, meaning that it's possible for you to be grieving the Spirit. In fact, the readers might have already been grieving the Spirit, and the author's telling them to stop doing that. So if it's possible to grieve the Spirit, that indicates that there's something personal about it. And this really should not be a surprise. Once we understand and take seriously that the Spirit is the personal extension of the Father. It is the extension of the Father's presence and of the Father's power. So the Spirit is very personal, but it's not a separate person from the Father. The Spirit can be grieved because it is the extended presence of the Father. By grieving the Spirit, you're actually grieving the Father by extension. And lastly, in chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, we read that we are to not get drunk with wine. This is debauchery but you are to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. So, believers are not to get drunk with wine, which is going to create a certain type of response and sound. On the other hand, they are to be filled with, with the Spirit. They're not to be filled with alcohol. They're to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit allows them to be speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual song. They're to be filled with singing and good melodies. And they're rejoicing in their heart to the Lord. So being filled with the Spirit brings about a positive response, a positive mood and atmosphere, a joyful response if we're to take the language from the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, joy, instead of being filled with the drunkenness of wine. So you get a little bit more of a sense of what it means 
for the presence of God to be among the believers. It moves them to sing, to speak to one another in psalms, and to make a melody with their hearts. So in conclusion, what have we learned about God, Jesus, and the Spirit in Ephesians? Well, God is one person. He is the creator of all. He is the God of all persons, and all others are under him in this hierarchy. Jesus, in Ephesians, is the Son of God, and he is the Son of the Father. Jesus died completely by offering himself, and the Father gave new life unto Jesus so that Jesus may be raised from the dead. Jesus, of course, is subordinate to the Father, and the Father is, of course, the God of Jesus. Jesus is repeatedly distinguished from God in the book of Ephesians. What about the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is repeatedly defined as the extended presence and power of God. Specifically, the Spirit is defined as the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit is indeed personal because it's the extension of the Father. So, by grieving the Spirit, which is something you're not supposed to do, you would, by extension, be grieving the Father because the Spirit is the Father's personal extended power and presence. So in sum, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, is not, upon close examination, a reference to the triune God, either implicitly or explicitly. In fact, the passage is actually a Unitarian text that proves that God is one person, the Father alone, and this Father, according to Ephesians, is the God of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore these triadic passages in the New Testament. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 9 next week, where again, God, Jesus, and the Spirit all appear together in the same sentence. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the non-negotiable, sound, biblical truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and neighbors. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the podcast on the air, please check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.